This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success podcast. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and we have a great guest today, Courtney Logan. How you doing, my friend? I'm fantastic, man. Pleasure to be here. Awesome, man. Well, we uh, we're excited you're here. I know you are. You're a you're a family man. You're a uh, an author. You're a, a former attorney. You're giving back to your community, man. You're making a big impact on people, and and I know that it, it hasn't always been that way. You know, you grew up in a with a, a different life than, than some, and so I know you're passionate about uh, helping others. and And uh, we'll talk about your book later. But Courtney, why don't you take our listeners on a little journey, kind of ride through your life of uh, what's made you the man you are today? Sure, fantastic. Thank you for um, having me here today, and um, I'm definitely honored to um, have this opportunity to kind of share my story with people. Um, all over the world that's listening to this podcast. So I, I grew up in, I grew up in the city of East St. Louis, Illinois, um, born and raised, and um, had really an interesting upbringing and background. My mom and dad had their struggles. My mom struggled with crack addiction, and my dad would struggle with alcohol addiction. So you know, younger, my younger years were very, very, um, in some ways, brutal. Um, when I was about three or four, my mom and dad, um, state had to step in and take me away from my parents. They put me in foster care. And I'll tell you, you know, you never know what that feeling is like. And I can recall like yesterday being stripped away from everything I know and everything that I love, you know, and being placed with total strangers. Uh, I remember Christmas time around that year, you know, my father came to visit me and he brought me this little bitty red fire truck. And I actually still had that truck. I got it um, on, on the side of my bed and my wife's been trying to get me to throw that truck <laughs> away uh, ever since. And, you know, we laughed and we played and we had really a great, phenomenal time. But when visiting hours were over, he stood up, he looked me in my eyes and he said, Courtney, I love you. And he turned around and walked out the door. I had never felt a sense of hopelessness like that in my life. You know, the person that was charged with taking care of me, loving me, protecting me was walking out on me again. Um, I was there with my younger brother, younger sister. We were all there together. I think my baby brother was nine months and my little sister was three and I was about four. Um, We were there for a few months. My grandmother came and rescued me. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, this little old lady, this feisty 66 year old who had just retired, um, did the most selfless thing you can ever imagine a person ever doing, you know, taking on three little babies after she's lived her life. She's raised her kids. You know, this is her time, right, right. to, you know, live her life and have some fun and travel and do all the things you can ever imagine, you know, you, you want retirement to be. And she was starting all over from scratch. And I remember the first night in her house, she taught us, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, yes, sir, and no, sir. And she instilled values in us. And, 
you know, she's 89 years old this year. She just turned 89 on uh, January the 5th wow. of, of this year. Still alive, still vibrant, um, still cooking great meals for us and still taking care of kids, you know, and um, she's a true testament of the human experience, in my opinion, of what we can do when we're talking about being selfless and not being selfish. So, you know, as I got a little older, you know, I had to go back and stay with my dad and life get, got a little tougher. You know, he he um, he's a Vietnam vet. And when he came back, he was just different. Um, the war really changed him. And when he left, he didn't do any drugs, didn't do any alcohol. He came back in a, a full blown hardcore alcoholic. And um, we felt the brunt of that. You know, my dad would drink a fifth of Seagram's gym every morning. And by the time I got out of school, he was full blown drunk most of the time. And our biggest task was to try to get dad to bed at night because dad, if not, was going to beat us or hit us or cuss and scream. And he was just a very violent person. When I was writing my book, um, Shaped by Fire, I had an opportunity to interview him and my mom, but specifically I had an opportunity to interview my dad. And it, it really the first time we ever had an opportunity to really talk about what happened because we never talked about what happened during those times because my dad would get so drunk he would just pass out at night he never went to bed so he never remember what happened the day after so to tell him hey dad you beat me last night or you hit mom last night to tell him those things the next morning that's fruitless right he, he doesn't remember those things and even to this day he still doesn't remember doing all the things that he did um so you know he you know, I said, Dad, you know, you know, how did you feel in that period of your life when you were battling, you know, that alcohol addiction? He said, man, I was in Crazyville. That's the term he used. He called it Crazyville. He said, I, I never knew what was going on and when things were happening. And and he said, that's why I knew I, I needed to turn my life around and I need to change. So my dad has been sober now for over 15 years. Um, that's and, a big deal. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's phenomenal, man, to see him now. And, you know, he's very productive. And even then he was productive. You know, he was the type of guy that would literally give you the skin off his back. You know, we say when people get your shirt off their yeah. back. You know, he would try to get you the skin off his back if he could. Um, when he was sober, he was the best example of a man that I could ever have. Hardworking laborer, um, worked for everything that he had, you know, struggled to take care of five kids. And we were his second set of kids. You know, he had, he had three by um, his wife, Beverly, and, you know, he had five by me and my um my mom um so he you know he's always been a hard worker you know but he just struggled um so i was so proud of him when he kicked that alcohol addiction and he did it cold turkey he literally just said you know one year it was around the time when my my brother got murdered he said you know i'm gonna get it i'm gonna get me a gallon of gin i'm gonna drink it and I'm never going to drink again. And since, and since that day, my dad has never had a drink of alcohol. Not you think that day. incident with your brother, was that, I mean, was that kind of defining moment, obviously, for him, do you think? You know, I, I really do think so, because I think in some ways he blamed himself for that. You know, he, he kind of believed that if he was around, you know, things would have been better for Paul and Chris. And I guess I need to tell you about Paul and Chris, at least to the listeners, um, when when before my mom got with my my dad my dad was married to a woman named beverly and beverly had two small boys when they got together so my dad raised them as his own kids one name was paul and the other name was chris um paul was the oldest um 
very, very smart boys growing up, but had lack of guidance um, because my dad was working and his their mom was working. So they spent a lot of times on their own and the streets kind of raised them and they ended up being becoming drug dealers. Um, in 1996, my brother Paul, uh, me and my little sister were sitting in the living room at the house and you know, we heard these people banging on the door and Paul comes running, running through the door and he said, dad, they coming, dad, they coming. And my mom's just like, well, who's coming? And do they got food, right? right. <laughs> who's that? Who, who, who is that? Right? Like, are they coming to play the game with us? Right. And before we know it, these men bust in the door with all these guns and, you know, these different letters across their shirts. And we kids, we don't know right. what's going on, man. We like, why does these guys got these guns in our face? Right. I mean, literally pointing a gun in my face. And I remember what the first guy said coming through the door. He said, nobody told us kids were going to be here. We didn't know kids were going to be here, you know, and that's really a testament of my childhood. Right. It's just we're just kids. Right. We're just trying to be kids. We want to play games and we want to go have fun. And, and and instead we're enthralled in, you know, this drug world. Like, you know, I write in my book that, you know, I was a front had front row seats to a fascinating underworld of guns, drugs and poverty. Like my mom was drawing drugs. My dad was an alcoholic. My brothers were selling drugs out the house. Like, I mean, like. And we're just like five and six and seven, right? Like just trying to like go play hopscotch and play basketball and it tag, right? Right. And but we got drug dealers pulling up at two or three o'clock in the morning. You can't sleep like that, and you know got people knocking on the door all times at night. And mom used to vanish, you know, for weeks at a time, right? She'll be there, and then all of a sudden she'll be gone for three weeks and no call, no phone, no nothing, and then she'll just reappear like she never left before. And, you know, it was always that juggle, you know, trying to stay sane, you know, um, and be a good student, right? A year after that, 1997, um, my brother Chris was murdered. Um, he was shot 13 times lying found found um, lying dead on his truck. Um, I'll never forget that night. My uncle came into the house and he said, Corden, you need to start praying. I think I was around 10 or 12. Or it was somewhere around that age. It was 1997. Um, and he said, you need to start praying. I was like, what's going on? He said, he said, your brother's been shot. You need to start praying. So, you know, I got down on my knees and I started praying. And, and by the time I got through praying, I went to the kitchen. And the kitchen looked like an abandoned army surplus store. I had never in my life seen so many guns and so many bullets before in my life. And it was very clear to me my family was ready to go to war. And um, I mean, the sinks were filled with bullets. I mean, it was it was something unimaginable. Um, I thought I had been dropped in the Mogadishu or somewhere, you know, some type of war zone that had become my kitchen. Um, and, you know, they told me, you know, that Chris had passed and, you know, it was all these men in the house, I guess they were my brother's friends and my family members. And I mean, it was, they were, they were looking, you know, they, they were trying to find these guys. So, you know, thank God the police found them first. And, um, two of the guys are actually serving natural life and, um, the other guys were sentenced to prison as well. So, that's all before I even get to middle school. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm just that's, sitting here thinking, man, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a crazy uh, upbringing. That's before I even make it to middle school, right? Like that's, and they say, you know, your adolescent years are your most impressionable years. Like this is when you learn about who you are and what you are. And we were just fighting to 
live. Like we were just fighting to eat and we were fighting it, you know, to have hot water. Like I literally remember times where, you know, I had to boil hot water on a barbecue grill in order for my little sister to take a bath. Right. Um, these are the types of struggles that people from the outside looking in, they say, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm like, well, where are the, where are the boots? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what's amazing is, is getting to know you. Um, you know, Steve Weinhoff was a guy that introduced us and, um, you would never know your story, right? I mean, you don't have the chip on your shoulder. You don't, uh, you just walk in a room, you got a big old smile and it's, it's just really cool to see, man, how you've pulled yourself out of that, uh, to what you've become. So, so now you're in middle school and, and what's, uh, what's going on in life now? So school was my refuge. It, it was always my refuge. It was the place where I felt secure. It was the place that actually, you know, rescued me from my environment. So I, I was always involved in everything. Uh, went on to graduate from high school, played football in high um, in high school, uh, went to college on a football scholarship. Didn't really like college football. It seemed like work to me. <laughs> so I stopped playing that because I was like, well, I'm I'm not big enough to go to the NFL. I'm not tall enough to go to the NFL. What am I doing? So I said, well, let, let me use my brain and not my brawn. So I joined the debate team at McKendree. Went on to win three national debate championships. That was a natural progression for me to go to law school. Uh, went to St. Louis University School of Law. Phenomenal experience there. Won a national championship in Moot Court. Um, and before I knew it, I was interning at, for a federal judge, and I ended up interning at the U.S. Attorney's Office, where I actually met Steve. Um, so, you know, never in a million years would I have ever imagined that the little kid growing up, you know, walking the streets of East St. Louis would be sitting, you know, in a courtroom or at a courthouse or working, right. writing documents for a federal judge. Right. Um, so by the time my third year of law school um, happened, I had an offer to my law firm that I had in, that I clerked with over the summer. And while working for the U.S. Attorney's Office, he said, well, you want to be a trial lawyer, right? I was like, yeah, I want to try cases. He's like, you're never going to try cases at a law firm. I was like, yeah, but I want to try cases. He's like, you got to go to the state's attorney's office. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but the state's attorney's office, they don't make as much as the, as, as the law firm people, right? <laughs> He's like, but yeah, but if you want to be a trial lawyer, whatever you do, you're going to have to go to the state's attorney's office. You might as well do it now and later. I was like, but I've, I've, I've already... I've already accepted the law firm offer. He's like, well, you got to at least go talk to Brendan. Brendan was a state's attorney in St. Clark County. You at least got to go sit and talk to him. So I put it off for a while and I put it off for a while. And he kept asking, hey, you talk to him yet? And I was like, no, I haven't done that because I really didn't want to do that. Right. <laughs> I was like, man, I just had a new baby. I just got married. You know, I'm starting finally out of school. I'll go, go make some money, take care of my family. <laughs> and um, so I had finally finally had an opportunity to um, go meet with Brennan. But when I went, Brennan was out, I think, on a murder case. So I ended up talking to Jim Piper. After the lunch with Piper, I knew that the state's attorney's office was the place I wanted to be. I had never met Jim Piper before in my life. Um, turns out after our talk, Jim was actually the, one of the prosecutors that prosecuted the murders of my brother. Wow. That's how circle. that's how I felt, right? Like I was like, okay, God, I see exactly what you're trying to do here. You're mm -hmm. making it very plain and clear that this is where I'm supposed to be. So I went home and told my wife. She couldn't believe it either, and she was like, and she was like, well, what do you think? I said, well, that's what I came to ask you. She said, well, what did God tell you? That's always her calculus. Um, what did God tell you to do? I said, well, I think God is calling me to go to the state's attorney's office. I, I believe it's going to be my opportunity to help the people at East St. Louis um, to, you know, add some 
add some value to the office. So she's like, well, what you asking me for? And why are you asking other people what you should do when God has already told you what you should do? Very profound statement there. For you, right? <sighs> yeah, she's, she's something. <laughs> <laughs> she's, Don't she's, go ask her any more questions. Right? I know, right? Well, I asked her a few more and she gave me the same answer, but yeah. we'll, we'll get there. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. I went to the St. Clair County State's Attorney's Office after law school. Um, phenomenal experience. Um, I stayed there for a little bit, and then I actually went back go to work for the law firm. Um, that was a great civil experience as well that, that I that I grasped from them and left that firm um, after about a year or so. Went to go work for another corporate defense law firm um, in St. Louis. And then I ended up taking a job working for the city of East St. Louis, a place I'd never in a million years when I was pinning a book think I would actually end up um, running and operating. I'm assuming that, that that move was kind of back to your wife's statement, what God tell you to do. I mean, is that a fair statement? Well, you know, I'll tell you, everybody I talked to when I told them I was considering the opportunity. Leaving being a lawyer, a nice job, good paying job going to be city manager in East St. Louis, they thought I was crazy. Like everybody thought, I mean, I don't think there was one person I talked to that didn't think I was crazy. And I don't think there was one person I talked to that did their answer was not no. It was no. Like it was not, no, you're not doing that. No, you're not going to jeopardize your entire career, everything you've built, your name, and you're going to go confuse yourself with East St. Louis politics. Why would you do that? Like nobody could believe that that was even something I would even consider. And when I went home and asked my wife, I said, listen, you know, this has presented itself. What do you think? Without any thought or anything, she said, what did God tell you? And I said, here we go again. (laughs) (laughs) It never fails. She said, what did God tell you? She said, because we want to, we want to be in line with God's will. I said, I believe God is calling me to East St. Louis to help a lot of people. She said, why are you calling people then? Why are you asking all these people for what they, what they think when God has already given you the answer? And I said, you're right. And I accepted the job. <laughs> Unreal. So what have you done in your life? I mean, a lot of our listeners, you know, obviously hear your story, probably inspired that here you are, you rise from poverty to pits and, and now to this family man and a good life. How do you stay positive? How do you, what do you do in your life to, to battle through those struggles? Well, you know, I won't give you the default question that we have to lean on God for all that we do. Right. But I think there are some practical things that we can do as well. Um, I believe perception shapes reality. Right. And I believe there's silver lining, there's positive things in every experience that we have. If I didn't, if my dad didn't battle alcohol addiction, if my mom didn't battle drug addiction, I wouldn't have the type of perseverance that I have today. So I believe it's very important that we stay, that we stay positive and be optimistic about all the things that we face in our lives, because sometimes those things are sent to build us. They're not built to hurt us or harm us. They're actually, you know, there's something special inside of us that needs to be drawn out of us. So we got to stay positive. The other thing for me was when I was younger, I was very focused on being successful, right? And I think we all have our different definitions of what success is, but my success was making it out of the hood, right? And, you know, not being killed before I was 21 or not being a drug dealer. So what I did was I turned all of the negative things in my life to, into positive motivation. So, okay, my dad is an alcoholic. I see what that is. I don't want to be like that. My mom's a drug addict. I sh- 
my her kids are kissing her through glass and I want to do that. My mom brother's a drug dealer. He goes to prison. My other brother's a drug dealer. He he gets killed. Don't want to do that, right? So what's left? Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, so when you look at those things, what's left? And I did have some positive people in my life, like um, my, my brother Smokey, uh, my dad's youngest um, son with his wife, Beverly. Um, he he was in college at the time at Tennessee State. He would come back and, you know, back and forth to school. And he would tell me about his experiences. And, you know, he traveled to China. And I'm like, man, I want to go to China. Right. I want to go to, I want to go to school, you know. And he was able to tell me about his experiences and it allowed me to dream a little bit more right um when i interviewed my brother paul for this book i said paul if you're able to go back and talk to your 18 year old self what would you tell yourself that would change your life he said courtney nobody ever came and told me about college nobody he said if somebody would have really came and told me what it was i would have went it would have been a no-brainer and that would have changed the trajectory of not only him, but his, my brother Chris and everybody else down the line, right? So, you know, I believe exposure is very critical to our younger people um, in the community because since I was able to be exposed through my brother Smokey's experiences and through, you know, my school experience, I believe that exposure allowed me to dream a little bit bigger and have more hope about what my future could be. Um, and I think that's very, very important, right? Um, to be able to dream and, you know, and have a vision, we need to be able to see some things in order to do right. that. Yeah. So what's your, what are your dreams now? What's your vision? My vision is definitely broadened over time, my friend. And, you know, now that I'm running um, the city that I used to write about and complain about, um, my, my vision is to build a very vibrant and thriving community in East St. Louis again to change the perception of what people think the city is and also change the reality of what the city is. From, so that's internally and externally. I think it's a major undertaking. I'm 30 years old and, you know, I've never ran anything this big before. Um, but so my biggest thing now is surrounding myself with the, the right people to kind of help me do that. Um, and it's a lot of work. It really is. So, you know, I, I try not to look too far ahead in the future because we never know how things are going to happen. You know, the, they say the best way to make God laugh is to tell him your plans for your life. That doesn't mean we shouldn't plan. Right. But we should always be flexible. And, you know, when I went into law school, I told myself I would do anything but criminal law. And my first job was a prosecutor doing criminal law. So that taught me my lesson. My lesson was don't say what you're not going to do, but be ready for all opportunities that makes themselves available to you. I love it. So our listeners are out there. They're you know driving around. They're doing whatever they do. And they listen to podcasts. What, what's something that people, especially in this area, and even other people listen around the country that may be in, in a big city and, and there's that, that part that needs help, right? So what can we do? as just normal everyday people to help an East St. Louis, for an example? I believe the youth are the future. You know, I believe if we can, if we can get a good hold on to the next generation and also help the generations that already exist, um, we can be very successful. Um, but I believe it's a grassroots effort and 
Kids spell love T-I-M-E. I'm going to say it again. Absolutely. Um, kids spell love T-I-M-E. And that's any kids all over the world. And a lot of our youth, they want to see you. <laughs> you know, they they want they want you to come volunteer. They want you to spend time. Because a lot of them don't have staples in their lives, just like I didn't. You know, when I was younger, mom was in and out and dad was in and out. Um, sometimes there are programs out there that allow for people to volunteer so you can just be a staple in some one of some of these kids' lives to stay them they need somebody to talk to right we think we think most of the time okay well the best thing we can do is just give money you know we could throw money at it we can um we can buy some backpacks when those backpacks you know get old you know what i mean and the, the pencils are used up you know there's still a void that is left there that needs to be filled by somebody right so just to go tell somebody about your experience and tell them how you got to where you you've made it to is valuable to somebody like me when i was eight years old trying to figure out what am i going to do with my life right? so if we can get one listener to do that what what's an organization or two in the area uh, or maybe if there's a national one but also then the local ones where can uh, where can people go if we can just get one listener out there to go and give that time. Sure. In the in the city of East St. Louis, we have the Christian Activity Center. Um, we have the Les, Leslie Bates organization. We got the Mary Brown Center um, that's doing great works in the community. Um, all the fraternities and sororities are active in the community. You got Big Brothers, Big Sisters on a national level. Um, they're doing great work in the community as well. So listen, you know what I tell people is. The need is great. The void is big. If you want to help, there's plenty of places to help. And if you need somebody to contact and you want to get plugged in, I'll help anybody that's willing to help get plugged in and connected to an organization. Where can people find you on social media if they want to reach out and help? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Courtney R. Logan. That's at Courtney R. Logan. I'm also on Facebook at CLogan81 and on Instagram at the same. Um, you can also find me on my website, www.CourtneyRLogan.com, or you can find me at www.ShapedByFire.com. So speaking of Shaped by Fire, why don't you tell us a little about your book? What's your, what's your favorite part of the book? My favorite part of the book would have to be um, the section where I talk about schools and school being the rest refuge. I believe education is critical and key to our future. Um, in my book, I advocate for year-round school, and I believe that idle time is bad for students in these types of environments. Um, I believe that we should have a constant hand on shaping these students' futures. Um, so, you know, pick up a copy, read it, you know, reach out to me, give me some feedback. Um, I speak all over the country um, to different organizations um, about my life and how they can be successful overcoming adversity. Um, to educators, how they can educate in these types of environments, because it is a unique situation. You know, teaching a student like me who didn't eat at night and had the drug dealer pulling up all through the night, you know, at 7 a.m. in the morning trying to get to school and being prepared to learn is a different experience than somebody with a well-balanced home life. So um, that's 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 what I'm, I'm here to do. I'm here well, to I think just for the people that have that normal balanced home life, too, is just you know, in our kids' lives and our own lives is be grateful. You know, I mean, I, I have a, a grateful journal every day. I, I write just one one thing I'm grateful for, right? It That's takes awesome. less than a minute, right. but, but it starts your day out of all the things from, you know, a warm bed, right? right. And, and a warm meal right. to a warm shower. I mean, the things that we're blessed to have that uh, I think sometimes in today's world, we just get busy 
and it's just fast paced and we don't slow down enough to be grateful. And I just find that's a good grounding mechanism for me to, to write it down and be thankful, be grateful. So what, um, what else, what else, anything you'd share with your listeners? I mean, I guess one of the things I'm always curious about for, for people is what do, what do you do to build those, what I would call a center of influence or a, um, an advocate for you or a partnership, if you will, because you've got to go in and make a big difference and it may be about crime, right? Somebody listening may be about how do I get that relationship for the finding the next client or getting that next contract or whatever it may be. What do you do to build that success around key partnerships? For me, it's important to be good at just building relationships, period. It goes back to the basics, right? Like if people can trust you, <laughs> if people can trust you and in your integrity, um, they'll latch on to you. I've found that being me just being in the city of East St. Louis has opened up opportunities for the city just because I am in the city of East St. Louis. Because you're um, one of them? Is that what you mean? Well, yeah, not only just because, so that's internally. So internally, I'm able to build bridges that nobody else can build because I am from there. Right. But externally, I'm able to build bridges just because of my reputation, integrity, and my credentials, right? Like people say, oh my God, I've they've never had a lawyer. Right in the seat of city manager of that city before they're trying to do something different. It signals to the outside community that something different is happening based on who I am and, and what I represent. Well, there's a trail of success there, right? Exactly. Right. So um, I believe relationship building is very critical in, in building that circle of influence. And more importantly, I, I think network networking is important. I, mean, I, I can't stress that enough. A lot of opportunities that have that has happened for me that hasn't been stuff that I applied for traditionally, right? It's just been, I know Courtney or, you know, um, Courtney's helped me with X, Y, and Z. So, you know, how about you go connect with him on that? So just being active and involved and in serving, <laughs> I, be, yeah. I believe in serving. Like um, I found that a lot of my opportunities, I've been blessed with them. It's not something I had to go do. They just kind of, they kind of come to me um, some type of way based on some relationship I've had with someone else. Right. I mean, that's how we're here now because, you know, we've had mutual relationships and mutual friends and now we're sitting here talking, you know, ab ab about, you know, great things. Right. So, um, and hopefully to foster that relationship to other things as well. And now I'll be able to say, Hey, you know, I've met, I've met Brett and, you know, he does X, Y, and Z. This is his business. You know, how about you go talk to Brett? Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think those types of things are contagious and they, they have a snowball effect and they have in my life. And I think that's how I've made it as fast as I have to where I am, you know, at the young age of 30, because of those types of things, I've always been willing to help. It's hard for me to say no. To, to certain things it's hard when it when it's service oriented it's hard for me to say no because i want to help people and i think people genuinely understand that i want to help people um and i think once you have that type of mentality and people understand what your heart is you know um things just naturally kind of flock to you on some of the shows and i think this feels right you know the circuit of success for those that know really have four pillars and you can see it up in my window here courtney you know the first top left is attitude top right is belief bottom right is activity and bottom left is results. So let's walk through that real quick, if you don't mind. What's the one thing? So just if you had to give a quick answer to each of these questions, the one thing you do to help have a great attitude every day? Being optimistic. Optimistic. Love it. What's the one thing that you believe in that nobody can ever take away from you? God. What's the activity that you know you got to do every day to be successful? Refuse to be denied. 
Refuse to be denied. Tell me more about that. I am one no from my yes, right? Um, I am one more step away from my dreams. But I understand that in order for me to get the no or the yes, I have to ask. In order for me to get to my dreams, I have to take steps. So I have to keep moving and I cannot let the objections or I cannot let the naysayers or I can't let the haters um, stop that. So I have to refuse to be denied. And that that just means you got to keep pushing through. Yeah. The, John Gordon uh, wrote a book called The Energy Bus. If you've never read it, phenomenal book, one of my favorites. And he talks about and there's your your passion and your vision must be greater than everyone else's negative negativity. Right. It's exactly what you're saying, man. That's awesome. Your results. Obviously you talked about East St. Louis. What's the one result you look at? What are you thinking? The ability to build better people. Um, I, I believe that everything that I do leads back to building someone else. Um, even my work being the city manager, you know, my objective is to pour into the citizens and also pour into the employees. Um, I think once we get beyond self, we'll understand that we'll surround ourselves with other people that are beyond self and they will actually pour into you. So you don't have to pour into yourself, right? We weren't made to pour into ourselves. We were made to actually help other people fulfill their dreams and their visions. And once we get there, right, other people will help us fulfill ours. Well, that's awesome. You've uh, just heard Courtney Logan's circuit of success for his attitude, his beliefs, his activities, and his results. I think if we can all focus on those four things and you have your one thing uh, that you got to do every single day to climb that ladder of success, I think is a big, big deal. So Courtney, my friend, it's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you. Your story is very, very inspirational. And it's, uh, you know, I'm fired up sitting here today, just listening to what you shared with our listeners and, uh, you know, applying that to my life and what can I do to continue to try to serve others Mm -hmm. and uh, give back to our community, make an impact because you never know that person that needs help. And uh, I think, you know, I just thank you, man, for sharing your story because uh, I know you say you're an open book, but that, I mean, it's, that takes a lot of courage to share what you've been through and now to see where your life is at. I mean, it's just, it's a whole nother appreciation for what you're doing, man. So congrats. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Great spending time with you today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.